1: to dear hank and john doors i prefer to think of it dear john and hank it's a podcast where two brothers answer your questions give you dubious advice and bring you all the week's news from both mars and afc wimbledon john yep why whenever you go golfing why do you always bring another pair of socks
0: so that why just in case
1: just in case Hmm? just in case what is it just in case what's what you can you can do this you need a putter. You get just in case. You get. Um, what do you get when you golf? Like a good
0: outcome. I, I've never a, a birdie. <laughs> I've never just, golfed.
1: I have also never golfed. I've watched it on television a few times. Just think, My friend people... Chris
0: is really into it, so sometimes I see it on TV <laughs> and he'll make all kinds of comments. And it's and I'll be like, well that. He did hit that ball very straight and far. (laughs) What an impressive achievement. John, I think that the the people at home have got it by now. It's just in case you get a hole in one. Ah, just in case you get a hole in one. Hank, I wonder how these (laughs) sock-related dad jokes are going to play for, like, the whole eternity after December 11th, which is when AwesomeSocks.Club closes Mm -hmm. to new members. Well, and so everybody after that is going to be horribly disappointed to learn they can no longer get a Socks subscription at AwesomeSocks.Club slash DearHank or AwesomeSocks.Club slash DearJohn. Thank you to all the people who've been using my promo code. (laughs) That doesn't really matter because... Is, yeah, none of the money goes anywhere except to charity. It's true, and
1: I don't care about the future, John. I care about now. And <laughs> and the great news is the Awesome Socks Club is doing amazingly well. We it kind of sold through our initial guess at the upper limit of how many socks we would need. So
0: the, we have beaten our <laughs> own expectations.
1: The result of that is that if you uh, if you bought socks before, like. Sunday, November 29th, they will arrive as normal. But uh, if, if when you were buying socks, there was a notification that told you about this, you will get your first two pairs of socks in February and then one pair of socks every month
0: after that, because we just can't make socks fast enough for you folks. So that's exciting. It is exciting. And we should unpack that a little bit, Hank, because this is another example of Hank's What I consider irrational exuberance running up against my, what I consider (laughs) reasonable caution. Uh And I have once again, this does not happen all the time, it should be said. No. But I have on this occasion been proven wrong. And your irrational exuberance was warranted when it came to the Awesome Socks Club, and I would like to formally apologize to all the people who are getting two pairs of socks in February instead of getting one pair of socks in January and one pair of socks in February. That is my fault <laughs> because I set the number too low.
1: Yeah, uh, but this is kind of your last chance. So if you wanted to check out the Awesome Socks Club, that's awesomesocks.club slash dearhank or awesomesocks.club slash John. and you can see how you can sort of delight yourself once a month for- all of 2021, or you can have somebody get it uh, for you as a present, or give someone else as a present. Look, there are
0: there so many options. It's it's just it's endless, <laughs> and all, all the money goes to charity. And the very best part is that instead of having a com domain name <laughs> like every other website, it has a .dot club <laughs> domain name, which is very exciting. Awesome socks club. You've never been on the .dot club side of the web. <laughs> There's this two things in
1: .dot club side of the web. There are uh, subscription services that are clubs. Uh And then there are the hottest new place where there's flashing lights and disco balls. Oh, right. And you definitely cannot go there because
0: of the pandemic. Right. Yeah. Have you... I want to get to questions from our listeners, but I dearly want to ask this question. Uh Because have you ever been to a a club? I don't think I have been to a club. I've been to to venues. Right. But I've never...
1: It's Montana. I don't know that we have any clubs here.
0: I have to say, every time I've been to a club, I've had a good time. Mm -hmm. It's just that I just feel like maybe that part of my life has Come to an end. Uh, yes, I agree. There's
1: nothing wrong with with this activity as long as uh, there isn't a current pandemic. I have a related story, John, that I want to tell you about the time that I was in New York City and someone said to me, "Let's go to a bar." And I was like, "Okay, let's go to a bar." And he was like, "How do you feel about going to a dive bar?" And I was like, "I don't know what a dive bar is." He took me to a di- the dive bar, and I discovered that a dive bar
0: is what in Montana we call a bar. <laughs> it's true. I've been to a lot of bars in <laughs> Missoula. Now that we're s- significantly into the podcast, uh-huh. maybe we should do what we do, which is answer questions from our listeners. And I want to ask you this question, Hank, because it reminded me of our childhood. Dear John and Hank, I'm 20 years old and I have two big dreams in life, both of which revolve around fridges. The first one is to own a Smeg fridge because they are so beautiful. I have no idea what that is, but I guess it's a kind of fridge. The second is to own a fridge that dispenses water because to me, that is a symbol of success. So when I own one, I know that I will have made it. (laughs) The problem is that Smeg do not sell fridges that dispense water. Mm. How do I reconcile these two incompatible fridge-based dreams? I think you've got to get rid of the Smeg dream. It's no good. And you've got to embrace (laughs) the fridge that dispenses (laughs) water. Water dream because when we were kids, Hank. Uh-huh. Do you remember this? Like going to other people's houses and seeing that their fridges dispensed water and being like, "Oh my god, well, the Sutherlands, yeah. have got it figured out." Well, not just that, but chipped ice. Oh, not a, not only did it dispense
1: ice, but it, there was a there was a giant motor in there that just just ripped it to
0: shreds on the way out. But even a refrigerator that would dispense ice. I mean, I'm I'm 43 years old and I don't have a refrigerator that can dispense ice. Me either. Because yeah. it's almost like it would be too good. <laughs> you know, like sometimes you don't want your dreams to come true uh-huh. because you want there to be something that you're out there reaching for. And for me, like I'm out there reaching for a fridge that when I push a button will give me ice. Yeah. And I, I worry that if I got it, I would just be, I would stop. Yeah. being I would stop being ambitious.
1: Right. Well, or, or you just find something else to want. This is a thing that I, I think is useful as I try and um, hold on to the wants that I'm like, OK, with. And I know that if I satisfy them, they'll just get replaced by something else. So I might as well stick with the one that I currently have because I know it. I know the shape of it. I know how bad it is. And I can sort of like manage it. Sophie, I have better advice for you, though. Are you ready for this, John? Yeah. Now, you have big dreams.
0: I do. No. Oh, Sophie does.
1: Sophie does. <laughs> but I do. T- I do too. Can we talk about mine? <laughs> <laughs> what you need is a third dream. So one of your dreams is to get a Smeg fridge. Mm. One is to get a fridge that dispenses water. Your third dream is to become the CEO of Smeg. Yes. And then you are yes. in charge of
0: whether or not <laughs> yes. water comes out of that baby. By the way, I've Googled Smeg fridges and they're really cool. And I'd like to rescind my earlier comment that you shouldn't work on <laughs> getting a Smeg fridge. You totally should. Yeah. But it should be part of your larger dream, which is to become the sole owner of Smeg. Right. So that you can announce, you can have a press conference and you could say, I bet you wondered." Why I gathered you all here today, it's to make a major announcement about the future of SMEG. We're in the water and ice distribution <laughs> business now, baby. That's right. And you
1: can say to, you can look down on the grave of Vittorio Bertazzoni, who's the current CEO of SMEG. I'm just assuming that like you've both lived good long lives and he's he's done with his time. And you can look at his grave and you can say, I know that you hated this idea and I know you're spinning in there, but it had to be done, my friend. We had to move into the future,
0: Vittorio. We had to take this retro brand into the 22nd century, v- <laughs> Vittorio. What a f- what a phenomenal name yeah. for a CEO of a refrigeration and oven company. And by the way, I know Vittorio Bertrazini is a listener to the podcast. So I just want to say hello. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Sorry for making fun of your fridge earlier. It was before I would Googled it and realized how cool your fridges are. But- if you want to make a really great fridge, I'm just going to tell you right now, it's got to be able it's got to be a situation where I push a button and it gives me ice. Yeah. And I realized this is not the biggest problem in the world, but but I open my freezer after reach in and get the ice, and the problem is that the first three quarters of ice is all frozen together, and so there's only yep. like six to eight pieces of uh-huh. ice at any time. Uh-huh. And if I'm not careful, if I don't have a pretty good, if I don't make a, make a point of going in there every couple of days, then I've just got a big frozen block of ice, and and then I've and then I'm in a situation where I've got to take the whole thing out. But yeah, you're right, Hank you need you need dreams in this world you that's need right. th- you need to you need something that you're reaching for that's like the green light across the bay in the great gatsby that, that 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 you have to push yourself toward despite being born back ceaselessly into the past and that for me is a freezer that dispenses ice well, Vittorio... That's it. Ber- Ber- That's it. I don't want to go back into the past and marry someone else. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just, you I can, just want You'll get there, John. Freezer. You'll get there.
1: V- Vittorio Bertazzoni has been the CEO of Smeg for 72 years.
0: That's a good run.
1: Since he founded it in 1948, I think that he's kind of taken a bit of a backseat to his son, Roberto Bertazzoni. And I'm I'm not saying this because I think you can't do it, Sophie, but it would be best I, if you may have left out a detail that you might be the child of one of the Bertazzonis.
0: Yeah, that does seem to be the fastest way to get <laughs> into the smeg hierarchy. Yeah, but there's other ways. Yeah, I think what you should do, Sophie, is you should become a venture capitalist or some kind of I don't know I don't know how people who move the big pile of money around and make the pile of money bigger I don't understand how any of that works but you should become one of those people you should devote your whole life to moving the pile of money around and making it bigger as you go and and you know to, to siphoning off some percentage of 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 the money you move around until you are like in control of a large venture capital fund that owns like 4,500 different companies. And Mm -hmm. then you should go to your board of directors and you should say, we're making a new investment. It's Smeg. (laughs) And they're going to be like, it's what? And you're like, it's Smeg. And we're not buying it so that we can make money. We're buying it because this has been my dream all along. Mm -hmm. This has been the whole point (laughs) of moving the pile of money around these last 45 years was so that I could buy Smeg and make them make a refrigerator that dispenses ice. Boom. Done. John,
1: this next question comes from Matt. That says, Dear Hank and John, what came first? People from Denmark being called Danish or the sweet baked good being called a Danish? In the grand scheme of things, none of this matters. Matt, well, I didn't think that we needed to answer this question because obviously the Danish people came first and then like, this is a Danish Danish, uh, and so we're going to call it a Danish. Except that if you're in Denmark, they don't call it a Danish.
0: They call Mm. it They call it Vienna bread because it's not from Denmark. Oh, wow. It's like how uh, everybody had a different name for syphilis. You know, like the Germans (laughs) called it the Italian disease and the French called it the German disease and the Poles called it the Russian disease and so on. Yeah. Well, it's 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 like that, but for Danishes. Yeah,
1: exactly. No one wants to take credit for Danishes. If you go to Denmark and you ask (laughs) for a Danish, they will look at you weird because they're like, why are you just saying that you want to? Person from Denmark. Don't you want an it's Austrian? It's called Wiener. It's called Wiener bread, which is uh, Vienna bread in, uh, mm. in in Danish. And in Vienna, they call it Copenhagener Plunder which means bread from Copenhagen, which means Danish, Danish bread. So the people in Vienna think that it's from Copenhagen, and the people from Copenhagen think it's from Vienna. And we're not entirely sure what happened here, but it's possibly due to the fact that Danish bakery workers in 1850 went on strike, and then a bunch of Austrian bakery workers came into Vienna, and they brought their own recipes because no one was baking. And then suddenly there were Austrian people making these Danish Danishes, or they were making Danish. They were making Austrian pastries in Denmark. And then they became very popular in Denmark. And then when they started to send them other places, they were like, oh, these are great Denmark treats.
0: This is kind of similar to how in the United States we have a kind of meat that we refer to as Canadian bacon. Yes. And you would think that in Canada they would call it bacon (laughs) the way that the rest of the world calls our football American football and we just call it football. Uh But no, in Canada they call it by its proper name, which is back bacon. And it also isn't even particularly popular there from what I've heard. Like, I think Americans consume more Canadian bacon per capita than Canadians do.
1: Well, it's it's it's, a, it's like the fact that we have French fries, which are the most... Um, they should be called American potatoes. They
0: really because should. Because they're the most American thing that exists. It's, it's really our only major contribution to global cuisine. <laughs> they're very good. They are. Uh, I, I, although... Hilariously, as with our other major contribution to global cuisine, uh, the hamburger, the best <laughs> ones are not from America. No. like Well, and hamburgers
1: are also not named. They're named after a place in Germany. What is wrong with us? Are they?
0: Hamburg. <laughs> oh, they are. It's a place in Germany. Oh, yeah. They're named after. Do people from Hamburg refer to themselves as hamburgers? <laughs> Ich bin ein Hamburger. Isn't it Ich bin ein Berliner like not actually what Berliners would say? Well, I think a Berliner is in in is
1: both a person from Berlin and also a pastry. So we've come full circle. <laughs>
0: <laughs> People from Hamburg call themselves Hans Eaton. Oh,
1: it's like how in Indiana you don't call yourselves Indianians. You call yourselves Hoosiers mm. just because you're just like, I picked a word.
0: Oh, it's not my favorite thing about Indiana. I was recently emailing with some people who work in the state government and they kept referring to like Mm. Hoosier things. Mm -hmm. And I just I wanted to be like, is there any I know that it's a little late for a (laughs) rebrand because I know we've been a state for like 140 years. I know we've been calling ourselves Hoosiers the whole time. Is it is there any way we, we could we could just quietly consider just being people from indiana
1: <laughs> yeah i actually think that it's really weird and great because everybody else is a montanan or a californian or a floridian and you're like no i think it's
0: fantastic you're the is there any other state like that where you just picked a word yeah i also like that the etymology of hoosier is unknown and everyone who's ever like tried to establish the history of the term it has like failed upon closer inspection which i think is i i i Okay, I'm I'm fine with it. I'm going to, let's move on. Let's let's answer another question. He's he's caught up, everybody. He doesn't want to make the Indianians mad at him. I am worried about it because it's a very divisive thing. And I don't want to, I just don't want to get in the middle of it. You know, it's like, it's like how I try to stay out of Irish politics because of our relatives. This next question comes from Amanda who writes, Dear John and Hank, I don't even know what the question is. I'm just trying to change the subject. I'm I've, I've been trying to convince my sister that the North Pole is not a continent. But the more I think about it, the more I realize. I don't know if it is a continent. Is it a continent or is it an island? What is it? Continentally confused, Amanda. Uh, it's not an island
1: or a continent. Or is it? Now I've said it out loud, and I feel like maybe it is. But it's the the North Pole is ocean, though it often, in fact. I think, always has ice on it. Hopefully, anyway. Uh, so, yeah, you you can go and stand on the North Pole, but only because there's there's ice there. And that leads me to the question, is a giant floating raft of ice a continent? Which, no, no. But ice is a mineral, and continents are just minerals that float on top of the magma ocean of
0: the mantle. So, right. who right. says? So, kind of. The only thing we know for sure, Amanda is that like, and this has become a recurring theme in Dear Hank and John, like all other categories, this one is artificial and constructed. And so <laughs> we decide what is and is not a continent, and we have to remember that we are deciding that because, you know, these are, these are, these are constructs. We're, we're trying to fit a bunch of things into boxes right. when, you know, like the universe doesn't fit neatly into boxes. The only thing we know for sure, Amanda is that Europe is not a continent. (laughs) That's the only fact about continents.
1: Yeah, we can definitely say that one. Not, I think this is confusing because Antarctica is so clearly, a, like, we talk about it as a continent, right. and it is, but when we look at it on a map, it's just a bunch of ice, just like the North Pole is just a bunch of ice when you
0: look at it on a map. But under well, the ice— Well, s- that's partly a fault of the map, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I've this is one of my longtime issues with world maps. Like, why is Antarctica right. white when all the other countries and continents are not? It's partly because, like, it doesn't technically belong to anyone— which but is cool. Why not just make it pink? Yeah.
1: Why is it white? Well, it's yeah, it is confusing. But underneath the ice in Antarctica, there is there are mountains and rocks, and it's a whole continent. Um, it's just yeah, there's a bunch of stuff going on there. Just very right down to the bottom of the Earth, which is kind of neat. We had like a we we got a weird bottom continent, which you know we didn't wasn't you know guaranteed or anything. Congrats, Earth. Good job. Sometimes I think about the fact that none of the there's no reason why anything is shaped the way it is. And it's very, ups- it's very, not upsetting. It's just disorienting.
0: Oh, I mean, there are reasons.
1: Yeah, but it doesn't have to be this shape. Like nothing has to exist. Florida didn't have to exist. There could be like an island, just like floating in a place where there isn't an island. And we would have lived in that world with all of those people who would have been from there. And it would have just been very different, but it's this way
0: instead. Yeah. And we would have had all these weird things that we said about those those people where where we were where we would be like oh you know those people living in the mountains that's a different kind of person uh-huh. out there yeah
1: well and in some ways it would be a different kind of person like I know because cultures.
0: culture and geography yeah. and human consciousness are all extremely weird it's true. All right, Hank, we have another question. This one is from Lindsay, who writes, Dear John and Hank, rats and mice are notorious for spreading disease throughout history. And when one scurries through the home, mouse traps are set to catch the little critters. Why then did cartoon mice become cute and lovable? The mice in Cinderella, Mickey Mouse, the great mouse detective, Jerry from Tom and Jerry, Pinky and the Brain, Stuart Little, Remy from Ratatouille. They're all so popular. (laughs) Why did we start adoring cartoon mice when real mice are so reviled? For clarity,
1: rats and mice are different, and Remy is a rat, not a mouse. Oh, okay. So, and and in general, in general, what we find is that, like, mice are portrayed as good, and rats are portrayed as bad. And I think that that is interesting. Yeah. And has a number of factors. But if you, the main thing is, if you look at a mouse, they are cute. Yes. And I don't, And like, it's, like, why things are cute is complicated, but mice are cute, and so even if even if you really don't want to have a mouse in your house because they're pooping in your cabinets and they're eating your rice, they're still kill. You do want to kill them, but they're still cute. So and so, I think that that's why they end up playing roles in as lovable characters.
0: I think there's also something else going on here that I can't prove. Okay, I I do agree that the cuteness of a mammal is a huge determinant of how it is treated in popular culture. Uh huh. This is actually explored brilliantly in the greatest film of all time, Penguins of Madagascar, which is like the best film about the Anthropocene and the ways uh-huh. that humans are selecting organisms for uh, for cuteness. But I, I think something else is happening too, though, which is that the animals that we fear and that have historically been... Tremendously negative forces in human life mm-hmm. are cutified at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century, right. almost on mass. Okay. So we see the emergence uh-huh. of teddy bears the the you know probably the most dangerous animal of all time to humans uh-huh. becomes the most lovable childhood plaything. We see the emergence of Tigger the tiger, the lovable, mm-hmm. rambunctious, completely undangerous. Tiger. (laughs) We see all of these animals become cute in this moment when we are becoming so much the dominant species on Earth that suddenly. Instead of those animals being threats to us, we are becoming aware that we are a threat to them. Instead of the world being a thing that is attacking us, the world becomes this thing that we have to protect. That's interesting, John. And I think that's why we made those animals cute. Yeah, it's also an, an
1: expression of power to be able to say, like, yes, this extremely powerful thing actually is just adorable. That's how powerful we as humans are. Yes. And and like that, that is a sign that that the consciousness at least of like this particular part of the earth, switched over and was like, we get how powerful we are. Right. We are in control of this earth.
0: Yeah. There's an Anthropocene Reviewed episode, uh, not to plug my own podcast, about teddy bears and the history of the teddy bear. And that's a big part of the actual story of why teddy bears became teddy bears was a story of like humans having so much power over bears that... We decide whether they live or die. We decide whether they're cute or threatening. Mm-hmm.
1: We are in charge of the image of the bear now. Yeah. Wow, what a power
0: move. A weird one. But then again, <laughs> like the twentieth century was really weird. I think we're only really beginning to engage with how weird it was now. It's very weird. What a what a weird time. Yeah. It's very weird for sure. But but rats
1: really didn't get didn't really get that treatment. We've continued to kind of hate on rats and even Remy, like the idea of not that I've watched Ratatouille several times recently for any particular reason, <laughs> but I have uh, the kind of idea of Ratatouille is that like it, he he has to overcome the fact that he would be seen as disgusting in his right in his like the, the his dream job. Right. And th- that is a very difficult thing. It's like the, one of the main t- tensions of the movie. So even in the case that we of Remy, which is the cutest, best rat, he's still being like the reality of him not being cute is being contended with.
0: But I wonder It's a very good movie. It is a great movie. I wonder, and I don't know enough about this to have to have an opinion about it, but I I wonder if rats became rats, like in the sense, you know, we even now we talk about like ratting someone out mm-hmm. as as you know, yeah. telling on someone. I wonder if rats, with all those negative connotations, predated the awareness that rats were what spread bubonic plague, which was yeah. you know, kind of the well, it's, the worst thing- Yeah, that they've done. In human history. Yeah. The, I mean, I think that the- mm, t- Bottom five. Bottom five. <laughs> okay. It's the worst thing
1: rats have done. I would probably venture.
0: Two humans. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: I don't I can't speak for individual rats. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah, like I think it's important. Like rats aren't just bad because they spread disease; they also were a, a pest. They would eat your food, which is like people needed that. Oh yeah, no, they yeah. were a
0: huge. Pe- it was a huge pest problem. Uh, yeah, yeah. So they remain a huge pest problem.
1: Yeah. When I was in Haiti, I was like, "Why are why are all of these buildings up on stilts?" And they were like, "So that the rats can't get into them and
0: eat the food." I was like, "Oh, yep, big issue." How do cats purr?
1: Uh actually weirdly we're not entirely sure. Now we we have some ideas, but like oh, By the
0: way, that question is from Lydia. Thank you for your question, Lydia.
1: <laughs> yeah. So they have they have a muscle in their larynx. They dilate and they constrict their glottis, uh which causes the air to sort of like, you know, rumble as it goes through. And we This like, but the actual like location and like the specifics of how the purring organ functions Mm. isn't entirely clear. It's hard to get a cat in an FMRI and like have them sit there and
0: and get them real calm and happy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's also hard to do that with me. Have them be happy and not moving. (laughs) But also cats will purr in distress. So if you're holding a cat, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're if they're purring, doesn't mean necessarily that they're happy. Mm. They kind of comfort themselves with their purr. So, Mm. yeah, so it's it's a little it's still a little bit of a a complicated structure in there that we're not entirely sure how it works. And the fact that they can purr both while breathing in and breathing out so they can purr constantly is also kind of a cute little mystery.
0: No, that's really lovely. And it reminds me that today's podcast is brought to you by purring a cute little mystery. (laughs) This podcast is also brought to you by dive bars.
1: Dive bars, uh, very special, (laughs) very, uh, uh, you can find them occasionally in New York City or absolutely everywhere in Missoula, Montana.
0: And of course, today's podcast is brought to you by Europe. (laughs) Not a continent. (laughs) And this podcast is brought to you by Remy the Rat.
1: (laughs) Remy is not the Ratatouille. Remy is the rat, uh, which is a joke you only get if you are on TikTok a lot.
0: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's a good joke, though.
1: everybody you know what i mean all blueland products are made with clean ingredients that you can feel good about blueland is trusted in over a million homes including yeah mine blueland has a special offer for listeners right now you can get 15 percent off your first order by going to blueland.com slash dear hank you won't want to miss it blueland.com slash dear hank for 15 percent off again blueland.com slash dear hank to get 15 percent off John, this question comes from Persephone, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I thought all the money from the Awesome Socks Club was going to charity. I went to sign up, but there was an option to round up for charity and add an additional dollar to my total. Is that for administrative costs or is it a different charity? Persephone.
0: No, it's just an extra dollar for charity. It doesn't replace any of the other dollars that go to charity. (laughs) So- yeah. The way that we've set up the Awesome Socks Club is similar to the way that like Newman's Own is set up. If you live in the United States, if you know anything about that salad dressing company, they also do other foods. All the profits go to charity, but there are still costs, of course. There are costs to make sure that, you know, yeah,
1: well, you employees buy, you are fairly paid and yeah. shipping
0: costs and all that stuff. So that extra dollar, if you choose to donate it, is just an extra dollar that goes straight to charity. It's just gravy. Yeah. Just gravy. Charity gravy. That's a that's a great way of thinking about it. I don't. I've never known what that phrase Me means. Either. Just gravy, but <laughs> do you, John? Good. Do you? Because I discovered recently that other people don't do this. Do you ever just drink gravy? Oh God, no. I don't. I don't okay. even like gravy on. I don't no. like gravy oh, ever.
1: If you could, if anybody listening could. Write in and let me know if I am not the Ugh. only person who does this. That would be great because oh, I started, oh, started to feel real weird about it and like I'm a weirdo. It's
0: very upsetting. That's really, really a bummer. <laughs> I wish I didn't know that about you. It's like, it's like I just found out that you are a robot and that like the way that you – That's just really upsetting. I wish I didn't know that about you. Um, That must be how you feel about me eating cereal that's moistened with water. Yeah. Yep. All right, Hank, let's answer one more question from Allie, who writes, Dear John and Hank, my best friend Grayson absolutely adores you both. It's very endearing how excited he gets talking about you, and his birthday is coming up shortly on the 3rd of December, so I have a small favor I'd like to ask. He said, and I quote, Honest to God, if Hank and John Green actually say... Happy birthday, Grayson. I will take the audio from that podcast and put it in a -a Build-A-Bear. I am so serious right now. I'd be buried with that bear. Grayson, do not get buried with that bear. (laughs) Live a long and happy life. Forget all about it before the time you get buried. Collaborate with many people on many wonderful projects. But happy birthday, Grayson. If you do not send us a video (laughs) of that Build-A-Bear saying happy birthday, Grayson, in my voice, I rescind the happy birthday.
1: Can we do it together so that I get to be involved at all?
0: Great. Let's get Ready? Three, two, one. Happy Happy birthday, birthday, Grayson.
1: Grayson.
0: All right. I think that was good. Okay, Okay, Grayson, we're going to do this, but only on the condition that you send us a video of this (laughs) Build-A-Bear saying happy birthday, Grayson, in our voices. (laughs) Well,
1: and also I'm going to need a picture... um, When you die, uh, which I will be dead already, but when you die, you're going to have to send a picture to one of
0: my heirs of you in your casket with your bear. Don't don't do that, Grayson. (laughs) Uh, Hank, a lot of people wrote in to say that they share my complete inability to understand the difference between East and West, especially once they have memorized... That they are east of something, Mm -hmm. and then if they move west of something, they're they're in trouble for the rest of their lives, and I appreciate it. Thank you for making me feel less alone. Hank, I wonder if you could read the number 37 in our show notes here. You got it, John. It's from Shauna, who asks, Dear Hank and John. I was
1: listening to episode 267 and I did pretty much the same thing, although on a less public scale. During my year 11 final 20th century history exam, I referred to East Berlin as West Berlin and West Berlin as East Berlin. And thankfully, my teacher said, because I was so consistently wrong, he would overlook the error. Said with an Australian accent, Shona. Oh, I knew it. I knew. It. I, that's it. That's what I
0: wanted. Oh. <laughs> That's all I wanted. <laughs> I I,
1: that's
0: all I wanted. <laughs> you suck. <laughs> <laughs> I got what I wanted. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you very much, Hank. Um, I was like, why? Oh. Did, why am I? Why am I doing this right now? Why did he want me to do it? Tuna, <laughs> send it. Send me a ten-hour loop of just ten, Hank saying "Shauna" that way.
1: Shauna. <laughs> Shauna, Shauna, Shauna. <laughs>
0: All right. Uh, in in less funny news. Oh, God. <laughs> Hank, as you know, AFC Wimbledon have really struggled this season in giving up goals immediately after scoring them. There is no organism, institution, or manufactured good that is as fragile as a 1-0 AFC Wimbledon lead. And... Wimbledon have developed some really fascinating strategies for dealing with this. Of course, uh, a couple games ago, we scored in the in the last minute of the game with essentially the last kick of the game. Brilliant strategy. Won that game one nil. Uh, then in our FA Cup first round game, which is a knockout competition, we had an even better strategy. Which is what? What if we don't score at all and we just take it to penalties? And then we win the penalty shootout. Brilliant. (laughs) And then AFC Wimbledon went back to their old bad ways in the second round of the FA Cup, playing fourth tier side Crawley Town. AFC Wimbledon scored to go 1-0 up. Beautiful goal from Joe Piggott. And then within, I don't know, five minutes, it was tied. And then, I don't know, 15 minutes later, we were down 2-1 because we had scored far too early. Uh I don't know how to get the message to, to manager Glenn Hodges and the boys. <laughs> stop scoring. We we got to stop scoring in the first half. It just, it, 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 it doesn't work. We've got to figure out a different strategy. We're just scoring way too early. And so AFC Wimbledon are out of the FA Cup. There will be no dream tie against a huge Premier League side this year. Instead, we will focus on uh, maintaining our League One status Hopefully through the end of the season and into next year, so that actual fans will be able to celebrate the really beautiful stadium that I got to watch, I got to see pictures of during the uh, the FA Cup game, and it, it the stadium looks so good. I just wish there were fans in it.
1: There will be, John. There will be.
0: Yeah, there will it's be. It's true. Well, what's the news from Mars this week?
1: The news from Mars is so cool, John. So according to some data from the Curiosity rover, there were once mega floods in Gale Crater, where uh, Curiosity resides. And the the indication is very cool and about 4 billion years old. So researchers from Cornell, Jackson State University, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and the University of Hawaii have been studying data about the sediment inside the crater. And they've been able to find these huge, weird, 30-foot-tall wave-shaped features called mega ripples, also called anti-dunes whoa and we have seen similar features on Earth and they were formed about two million years on Earth because of melting ice and on Mars these are much older about four billion years ago and four billion years ago a meteor crashed into Mars and when I say a meteor I well we're not in we we're, we're talking like A thing the size of a small planet. So this was a very big event for Mars. You can see it. Mm. Basically, the entire northern hemisphere of Mars is an impact crater. So 4 billion years ago, there was this massive crash geologic event. And the heat from this melted, like, all of the ice on the planet and released... A bunch of carbon dioxide and methane that was trapped in the surface. So not, so not only did you get a bunch of liquid water from the melting ice, the carbon dioxide and methane warmed up the planet. So the atmosphere was warm and it was wet. And that created a big like water vapor cloud. And then uh, a lot of it rained down in this massive giant mega flood where the rain mixed with water traveling down mountains to create all these flash floods. Uh, This adds to previous research that's found evidence of these floods on Mars, including rock data from the Pathfinder mission. So it seems like this, like potentially, now we're not entirely sure that this is like the only thing that led to this warm, wet Mars, but potentially this impact, which was absolutely devastating to the planet and would have obviously killed anything that currently lived there, ended up making Mars for a long time habitable by throwing up all of this carbon dioxide and methane into the atmosphere. And also creating like at first it was just extremely cataclysmic and like, you know, obviously not a good place to be. But after some time could have meant that there was this longer period of fairly stable, fairly warm Mars. Hmm. How that interacts with the like what we know of as a fairly long period of standing water on the surface. We don't know for sure, but it could be that those things are related.
0: Wow. I mean, all of that just reminds me of how ridiculously vulnerable. Atmosphere is.
1: I know. I'm so sorry that I've given you this new f- worry about atmosphere, but it is a tenuous little thin wisp of gas that uh, yeah. is very necessary. Well, it's
0: just a th- it's a thing that we've been mess. You know, we messed with for a long time without understanding that we were messing with it, yep. and now we're messing with it, understanding that we're messing with it. And I, yeah, it doesn't mean I. I, I to be clear, I'm not. Pro- Proposing like a day after tomorrow scenario, where like overnight there's a uh, cataclysmic event as a result of changes to the atmosphere. Yeah. But the 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 slow motion, many layered catastrophe for me, all of this research just underscores uh, how how real that is and and how critical it is to the future of the human story to take it seriously. Yeah.
1: It's it's hard because I think that we often forget that gas even exists and that we're constantly like yeah you know we would die immediately without it. A thing that I didn't really know until fairly long into my you know education that is my life is that the like air pressure actually forces oxygen into our lungs. So like all of the mm. atmosphere that is sitting on top of us right now is pushing down on us and and in on mm-hmm. us in all directions and that's what like that pushing pushes oxygen into our blood mm. without that pressure that we wouldn't ha- we wouldn't be able to do that which is why when you are in a low pressure environment not as much oxygen gets into your blood there's it's not just that there's not as much around it's that like the pressure isn't there to to force it in oh
0: now i'm moving my hands around you can feel it i'm feeling the i'm feeling the gas i'm feeling the feel the gases feeling feeling the fact that i'm on earth yeah and i'm surra- I'm, I'm in a weird soup that I don't see or think of as a soup, Uh but it's still there. Just swimming through this weird gas soup. Thanks for potting with me. Now I live in a different universe. (laughs) I have to leave.
1: (laughs) All right, John, thank you for making a podcast with me as well. If you want to- Hey, before we go,
0: we're going to end this episode with a 10 minute clip. That's the first 10 minutes of my brother, Hank Green's first novel, an absolutely remarkable thing. It's the audiobook, which you can get at all the places where you get audiobooks. And I love this book so much. And I wanted to do this this week because they discovered a monolith <laughs> in Utah that reminded me that yeah. Hank's books have a way of becoming ever more relevant and present in my life, even as time passes. Like, they become better predictors of the future as things unfold that Hank saw that I I, I couldn't see when he was writing. So uh, enjoy this 10 minutes of, of the audiobook after the credits, and um, please consider getting an absolutely remarkable thing for your friends and family this holiday season. Thank you, thank you, John. I hope
1: that everybody enjoys that. This podcast is edited by Joseph Tuna Medish. It's produced by Rosianna Hals-Rojas and Sheridan Gibson. Our communications coordinator is Julia Bloom. Our editorial assistant is Taboki Chakravarti. The music you're hearing now and at the beginning of the podcast by the Great Granarola, and as they say in our hometown,
0: don't forget to to be awesome.
1: All right, here it is. Thanks for sticking around. An Absolute Remarkable Thing by me, Hank Green, read by Kristen C.
2: Penguin Random House Audio presents An Absolutely Remarkable Thing by Hank Green. Chapter One. Look. I am aware that you're here for an epic tale of intrigue and mystery and adventure and near death and actual death. But in order to get to that, unless you want to skip to chapter 13, I'm not your boss, you're going to have to deal with the fact that I, April May, in addition to being one of the most important things that has ever happened to the human race, am also a woman in her 20s who has made some mistakes. I am in the wonderful position of having you by the shorthairs. I have the story and so I get to tell it to you the way I want. That means you get to understand me, not just my story. So don't be surprised if there's some drama. I'm going to attempt to come at this account honestly, but I'll also admit to a significant pro-me bias. If you get anything out of this, ideally it won't be you being more or less on one side or the other, but simply understanding that I am, or at least was, human. And I was very much feeling only human as I dragged my tired ass down 23rd Street at 2.45 a.m. after working a 16-hour day at a startup that, thanks to an aggressively shitty contract I signed, will remain nameless. Going to art school might seem like a terrible financial decision, but really, that's only true if you have to take out gobs and gobs of student loans to fund your hoity-toity education. Of course, I had done exactly that. My parents were successful, running a business providing equipment to small and medium-sized dairy farms like the little things you hook up to cows to get the milk out. They sold and distributed them. It was good business, good enough that I wouldn't have had a lot of debt if I'd gone to a state school, but I did not do that. I had loans, lots. So after jumping from major to major, advertising, fine art, photography, illustration, and finally settling on the mundane but at least useful BFA in design— I took the first job that would keep me in New York and out of my old bedroom in my parents' house in Northern California. And that was a job at a doomed startup funded by the endless well of rich people who can only dream the most boring dream a rich person can dream, being even more rich. Of course, working at a startup means that you're part of the family. And so when things go wrong, or when deadlines fly past, or when an investor has a hissy fit, or just because, you don't get out of work until three in the morning, which honestly I hated. I hated it because the company's time management app was a dumb idea and didn't actually help people. I hated it because I knew I was just doing it for the money. And I hated it because they asked the staff to treat it like their whole life rather than like a day job, which meant I didn't have any time to spare to work on personal projects. But I was actually using my degree doing actual graphic design and getting paid enough to afford rent less than one year out of school. My work environment was close to technically criminal and I paid half of my income to sleep in the living room of a one-bedroom apartment, but I was making it work. I fibbed just now. My bed was in the living room, but I mostly slept in the bedroom. Maya's room. We weren't living together. We were roommates. And April from the past would want me to be very clear about that. What's the difference between those two things? Well, mostly that we weren't dating before we moved in together. Hooking up with your roommate is convenient, but it is also a little confusing when you live together through much of college, before finally hooking up, and have now been a couple for more than a year. If you happen to already live together, when does the should we move in together question come up? Well, for Maya and me, the question was, can we please move that secondhand mattress out of the living room so that we can sit on a couch when we watch Netflix? And thus far, my answer had been, absolutely not, we are just roommates who are dating which is why our living room still had a bed in it. I told you there would be drama. Anyway, back to the middle of the night, that fateful January evening. This shitty app had to get a new release into the App Store by next week, and I had been waiting for the final approvals on some user interface changes and whatever. You don't care. It was boring work BS. Instead of coming in early, I stayed late, which has always been my preference. My brain was sucked entirely dry from trying to interpret cryptic guidance from bosses who couldn't tell a raster from a vector. I checked out of the building. It was a co-working space, not even actual leased offices, and walked the three minutes to the subway station. And then my metro card got rejected for no reason. I had another one sitting on my desk at work, and I wasn't precisely sure how much money I had in my checking account, so it seemed like I should walk the three blocks back to the office just to be safe. The walk sign is on. So I cross 23rd, and a taxi cab blares its horn like I shouldn't be in the crosswalk. Whatever, dude, I have the walk light. I turn to head back to the office, and immediately, I see it. As I approach, it becomes clear that it is a really, really exceptional sculpture. I mean, it's awesome. But it's also a little bit New York awesome, you know? How do I explain how I felt about it? I guess, well, in New York City, people spend 10 years making something amazing happen, something that captures the essence of an idea so perfectly that suddenly the world becomes 10 times clearer. It's beautiful, and it's powerful, and someone devoted a huge piece of their life to it. The local news does a story about it, and everyone goes, neat. And then tomorrow, we forget about it in favor of some other absolutely perfect and remarkable thing. That doesn't make those things unwonderful or not unique. It's just that there are a lot of people doing a lot of amazing things, so eventually you get a little jaded. So that's how I felt when I saw it a 10 foot tall transformer wearing a suit of samurai armor, its huge barrel chest lifted up to the sky a good four or five feet above my head. It just stood there in the middle of the sidewalk, full of energy and power. It looked like it might, at any moment, turn and fix that empty, regal stare on me. But instead, it just stood there, silent and almost scornful, like the world didn't deserve its attention. In the streetlight, the metal was a patchwork of black-as-night matte and mirror-reflective silver. And it clearly was metal, not some spray-painted cardboard cosplay thing. It was stunningly done. I paused for maybe five seconds before shivering both in the cold and in the gaze of the thing, and then walking on. And then I felt like the biggest jerk. I mean, I'm an artist working way too hard at a deeply uninteresting job to pay way too much in rent so I can stay in this place so that I can remain immersed in one of the most creative and influential cultures on earth. Here in the middle of the sidewalk is a piece of art that was a massive undertaking an installation that the artist worked on possibly for years to make people stop and look and consider. And here I am, hardened by big city life and mentally drained by hours of pixel pushing, not even giving something so magnificent a second glance. I remember this moment pretty clearly, so I guess I'll mention it. I went back to the sculpture, got up on my tiptoes, and I said, Do you think I should call Andy... The sculpture, of course, did nothing. Just stand there if it's okay for me to call Andy. And so I made the call. But first, some background on Andy. You know those moments when your life shifts and you think, I will definitely, without a doubt, continue to love and appreciate and connect with all of these cool people I have spent so many years with despite the fact that our lives are changing a great deal right now? And then instead, you might as well unfriend them on Facebook because you ain't never going to see that dude again in your whole life. Well, Andy, Maya, and I had somehow, thus far, managed to avoid that fate. Maya and I had done it by occupying the same 400 square feet. Andy, on the other hand, lived across town from us, and we didn't even know him until junior year. Maya and I, by that point, were taking most of the same classes because, well, we really liked each other a lot. We were obviously going to be in the same group whenever there was a group project but Professor Kennedy was dividing us up into groups of three, which meant a random third wheel. Somehow we got stuck with Andy, or probably from his perspective he got stuck with us. I knew who Andy was. I had formed a vague impression of him that was mostly, that guy sure is more confident than he has any right to be. He was skinny and awkward with printer paper pale skin. I assume he began his haircuts by asking the stylist to make it look like he had never received a haircut. But he was always primed for some quip, And for the most part, those quips were either funny or insightful. The project was a full brand treatment for a fictional product. Packaging was optional, but we needed several logo options and a style guide, which is like a little book that tells everyone how the brand should be presented and what fonts and colors are to be used in what situations. It was more or less a given that we would be doing this for some hip and groovy fictional company that makes ethical fair trade jeans with completely useless pockets or something. Actually, it was almost always a fictional brewery because we're college students. We're paying a lot of money to cultivate our taste in beer and be snobby about it. And I'm sure that's the direction Maya and I would have gone in. But Andy was intolerably stubborn and somehow convinced us both that we would be building the visual identity of Bubble Bum, a butt-flavored bubblegum. At first, his arguments were silly, that we weren't going to be doing fancy cool shit when we graduated, so we might as well not take the project so seriously but he convinced us when he got serious. Look, guys, he said. It's easy to make something cool look cool. That's why everyone picks cool things. Ultimately though, cool is always going to be boring. What if we can make something dumb look amazing? Something unmarketable, awesome. That's a real challenge. That takes real skill. Let's show real skill. I remember this pretty clearly because it was when I realized there was more to Andy. By the end of the project, I couldn't help feeling a little superior to the rest of our classmates, taking their skinny jeans and craft breweries so seriously, and the final product did look great. Andy was, and I had known this but not really filed it as important, an extremely talented illustrator, and with Maya's hand lettering skills and my color palette work, it did end up looking pretty great. So that's how Maya and I met Andy, and thank God we did. Frankly, we needed a third wheel to even out the intensity of the early part of our relationship. After the Bubble Bum project, which Kennedy loved so much he put it on the class website, we became a bit of a trio. We even worked on some freelance projects together, and occasionally Andy would come over to our apartment and force us to play board games. And then we'd just spend the evening talking about politics or dreams or anxieties. The fact that he was obviously a little bit in love with me never really bothered any of us because he knew I was taken, and... Well, I don't think Maya saw him as a threat. Somehow, our dynamic hadn't fractured after graduation, and we kept hanging out with funny, weird, smart, stupid Andy Scamped, who I was now calling at 3 o'clock in the morning. The fuck, April? It's 3 a.m. Hey, I've got something you might want to see. It seems likely that this can wait until tomorrow. No, this is pretty cool. Bring your camera. And does Jason have any lights? Jason was Andy's roommate. Both of them wanted to be internet famous. They would stream themselves playing video games to tiny audiences, and they had a podcast about the best TV death scenes that they also filmed and uploaded to YouTube. To me, it just seemed like that incurable ailment so many well-off dudes have, believing, despite mountains of evidence, that what the world truly needs is another white guy comedy podcast. This sounds harsh, but that's what it seemed like to me back then. Now, of course, I know how easy it is to feel like you don't matter if no one's watching. I've also since listened to Slain Spotting, and it's actually pretty funny. Wait, what's happening? What am I doing? He asked. Here's what you're doing. You're walking over to Gramercy Theater, and you're going to bring as much of Jason's video shit as you can, and you're not going to regret it, so don't even think about going back to whatever hentai VR game you're playing. This is better, I promise. You say that, but have you played Cherry Blossom Fairy 5, April May? Have you? I'm hanging up. You're going to be here in five minutes. I hung up. Several people who weren't Andy walked by as I waited for him. Manhattan is less legit than it once was, for sure, but this is still the city that never sleeps. It is also the city of, Behold the field in which I grow my fucks. Lay thine eyes upon it and see that it is barren. People gave the sculpture a quick glance and kept on walking, just as I had very nearly done. I tried to look busy. Manhattan's a safe place, but that doesn't mean a 23-year-old woman by herself on the street at 3 a.m. isn't going to get randomly harassed. For the next few minutes, I got to spend a little time with the structure. Manhattan is never really dark. There was lots of light around, but the deep shadows and the sculpture's size made it difficult to really understand it. It was massive. It probably weighed several hundred pounds. I took my glove off and poked it, finding the metal surprisingly not cool. Not warm either, exactly, but hard. I gave it a knock on the pelvis and didn't hear the bell ring I expected. It was more of a thunk, followed by a low hum. I started to think that this was part of the artist's intentions, that the goal was for the people of New York to interact with this object, to discover its properties. When you're in art school, you do a lot of thinking about objectives and intent. That was just the default state, see art, critique art. Eventually, I stopped my critique and just took it in. I was starting to really love it. Not just as a creation of someone else, but the way that you love really good art. Just enjoying it. It was so unlike other things I'd seen and brave in its transformerness, Like, I would be terrified to do anything that visually reflected mecha-robots in any way. No one wants to be compared to something that's mainstream popular. That's the worst of all possible fates. But there was much more to this piece than that. It seemed to have come from a completely different place than any work I'd ever seen before. Sculptural or not,